Hello and welcome to this podcast from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is New York Times bestselling author Jonah Lehrer, whose latest book is called Imagine, How Creativity Works. Jonah's earlier books, The Decisive Moment, How the Brain Makes Up Its Mind, and Proust was a neuroscientist, give some indication of his interests, what neuroscience can tell us about everyday life, and how the world of the arts and sciences can provide complementary insights. Malcolm Gladwell has said of him, Jonah Lehrer knows more about science than a lot of scientists, and more about writing than most writers. In his new book, Imagine, Jonah is interested in understanding human creativity in all its diversity, as he memorably puts it, breaking open the black box of the imagination. His working definition of creativity is a new idea that bears repeating, and he explores its many facets in areas as diverse as poetry, product design, film and surfing. Along the way, he tackles questions such as what strategies can help us enhance our creativity? Do we work more creatively with people we know well? Does our creativity peak when we are young? And what effect do substances such as caffeine, nicotine, alcohol and drugs have on our creativity? You can hear his answers to some of these questions in this interview. When we met in Bristol shortly after Jonah had flown in from the Canadian leg of his book tour, I began by remarking that I guessed that the choice of the imperative for his title, Imagine, was deliberate. I mean, really, my goal with the book was to simply get people to think about thinking, to reflect for a moment on this pretty wondrous human talent, this, this defining feature of human nature, which is the ability to invent new stuff. I mean, look around at our world and... We are surrounded by our own inventions. Um, and, and so I wanted to shed some light on, on, this, on this very, very mysterious act. Because I think for too long, we've, we've really convinced ourselves that creativity is a very rare gift. We've outsourced it to the muses. Um, inspiration literally means breathed upon. And so I wanted to, in a sense, de-romanticize this, this very wondrous talent. And by reflecting upon it, thinking about it, give people some practical ideas they can employ in their own lives. Yeah, no, you know, that was that was definitely part of the book too. I think it remains to be seen in all honesty, just how practical these these tips will be. But but I think it's still our best shot. Really what I wanted to do in the book is I think for too long we've seen creativity as as this single mode of thought, this 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 distinct form of thinking separate from other forms of cognition. And what the science of creativity has revealed is that's really not true, that creativity is really a catch-all term for a variety of distinct thought processes, each of which are well-suited to particular kinds of creative problems. So depending on the thing you are trying to solve, the new kind of answer you need, you should engineer your thoughts accordingly. So sometimes you're going to need a moment of insight. Let's say you've been working on a problem for months and you've made lots of progress, but then you hit the wall. Then you all, all of a sudden are stuck and stumped and this problem seems impossible. What the science says is you probably need an epiphany and so you should take a break, go on vacation, take a long bath, go for a walk in the woods. So so thoughts like that, just just to give people a better sense that, that, that depending on where you are in the creative process, you should either drink another cup of coffee or, or have a beer on the couch. I think we can hopefully try to structure our thoughts to better reflect the, you know, the content of those thoughts. It's clear from the book that they're sometimes trying to force an answer to a problem is by, by sort of analytical focus is going to be the worst means of actually yeah. coming with, with a breakthrough. Absolutely. And this kind of, I think, runs counter to 
this theme you see in many workplaces, which is that you know productivity is all about focus, all about chaining yourself to your desk and staring straight ahead at your computer screen, not leaving your cubicle. That is how to be an effective worker. That is, I think, just just how we typically view productivity. You see them in the classroom too. One of the first lessons we teach kids early on is stop staring at the window, don't daydream, focus, focus, focus. And and certainly, many instances in life you need to focus. It's just going to be good old fashioned perspiration and hard work. But the science of creativity shows us is that many Many of our best ideas arrive when we're not focused. They arrive in the bathtub. They arrive in the shower. They arrive when we're drunk on the couch. You know, a study came out just last month showing that students, undergraduates who are very drunk, so too drunk to drive a car, solve 30% more very difficult creative problems. They have 30% more insights. That's very good news for students. Yes, exactly. So obviously that's not the kind of mental mode you want to be in when you're taking a math test or driving a car. But if you want to be creative, it sometimes can help. Same goes for daydreaming. Even though we, we really try to get our kids to not daydream so much, people who daydream more score much higher on tests of creativity. That daydreaming is, is actually a very productive mental state where we're mashing up ideas, exploring counterfactuals. So you know, I think, I think we've taken an expanded view of, of what effective thinking looks like and realize that there is no universal cure, that, that it's not always good to be focused. Some of our best ideas, some of our most interesting thoughts occur when, when we are completely distracted. But it seemed from the book that the daydreaming had to have a certain degree of sort of self-consciousness about it. It couldn't be completely free from it. You couldn't sort of simply drift off to your Hawaiian island. No, you couldn't fall down the rabbit hole of the mind completely. You you had to have one foothold in consciousness. And so... The way they do these studies is they actually give people Tolstoy, a particularly tedious section of War and Peace. Then they use eye tracking to find exactly when you start to daydream. And it turns out, after a sentence or two, just about everyone starts to daydream. This is not the most scintillating prose Tolstoy ever wrote. And, and then they ask you, every once in a while, are you daydreaming? And what they find is that people who only notice they're daydreaming after they are probed, they don't show a big boost in creativity. And that's probably because they're having good ideas while daydreaming, but they're not alert enough to actually realize those ideas are good, to bring them back to the real world. So it seems to be essential to have some sort of self-awareness, that when you daydream, you also want to notice, hey, I'm daydreaming, and I'm thinking about this problem that I can't solve, and maybe I'll come up with an answer, in which case I should write it down, I should make a note of it. You mentioned alcohol a moment ago. I wondered what the science was saying about other drugs, yeah. other licit or illicit, yeah. nicotine, caffeine, and, and other, yeah. other drugs. There is, of course, an incredibly rich, tangled history of creative people and drugs. That I think, you know, as long as we're in the business of creating new stuff, and I think it will always be in that business, we'll always be looking for chemical shortcuts simply because creativity is so hard. It's so hard to bring something new and useful into this world, to make something pretty, to have an idea that has a second life. So so these chemical shortcuts, I think many instances, I think what science has shown, it, it's in a sense reverse engineered these these habits, these the self-medicating habits of poets and jazz musicians and mathematicians and so on. So marijuana, for instance, increases divergent thinking. So people are much better at solving very difficult creative word puzzles when they've smoked a joint. Alcohol we talked about, so alcohol loosens up the chains of cognition, makes it easier to experience those moments of insight, makes us more likely to daydream. And then there are the drugs which many writers especially have leaned on, which increase alertness and focus. They, they, they in a sense, sharpen the spotlight of attention. And these are drugs like 
caffeine and nicotine. I'm thinking here of Voltaire and his 40 cups of espresso a day. Um, in the book, I talk about W.H. Auden and his benzedrine habits. Uh, it was just, you know, an amphetamine, which in the 50s was legal. Uh, it was a common prescription for asthma. And as Auden put it, benzedrine turned him into a poetry machine, where for the first time in his career, he could, he could spend 12 hours thinking about a single line of poetry. That normally, human attention is very fickle. It flits about. We're so distractible. We are very distractible species and yet when you're on these drugs which which make which make it easier to pay attention that, that can often come with benefits especially if you're a writer and you need to do a lot of editing and I'm probably paraphrasing but you quote a mathematician who says a, ma- a mathematician is a machine for converting coffee into equations yes that's Paul Erdos who um Unfortunately, he wasn't just hooked on coffee. He, he, he also had a very serious amphetamine habit. Um, and he actually made a bet with one of his colleagues who was quite worried about Erdos because Erdos, when he'd get very intensely involved with a math problem, he would just stay up for weeks at a time and just live off Benzedrine. And so he would have these sudden bouts of weight loss. And so after one of these dangerous bouts, his colleague said, I bet you can't stay off amphetamines for a month. And Paul Erdos said, well, I bet I can. And he was able to not take amphetamines for a month. But when the experiment was over, when the bet was over, he said, the history of mathematics has been set back by a month. Um, so he, he absolutely saw these pills as a crucial tool, simply because, you know, he saw math as being all about focus, that, that you, in a sense, have to unconceal these problems. You have to, you know, winnow them down to their essence. And that, re- that required just lots and lots of attention. That's a, the tangled history of substances and creativity. There's also a long-standing association with mental illness and creativity. And again, what, what does the science say about that? Is, is that sort of partly a, a romantic myth that, that in mental illness people have enhanced states of creativity? This is a very complicated subject because, of course, one never wants to valorize mental illness. One always wants to you know, begin with the acknowledgement that suffering for the sake of art is still suffering, that, that these mental illnesses are horribly painful and can cause all sorts of tragedies. Um, but you go back 50 years in the literature and you hear a lot of speculations on that there might be some correlation between schizophrenia, say, and creativity, that, that highly creative people may be mildly schizophrenic, they may be schizotypal. But that's not actually what the literature bears out. Instead, what research, and this is largely the work of K. Redfield Jameson and Nancy Andreessen, they found in study after study that highly successful creative people, and their subjects are often writers, um, that they're anywhere between 8 to 40 times more likely to suffer from bipolar depression. So in a sense, you know, these highly successful creative people are not crazier than the rest of us. They're just sadder. And one explanation for why this correlation may exist, and this is at this point just a hypothesis, is that the extreme swings of bipolar depression, where you get these euphoric highs followed by these very dismal lows, in a sense echoes the natural swings of the creative process. That in reason, your scientists have found that our moods can you know, profoundly influence cognition so that people are in a positive mood, say after a beer or after showing them a short video of a stand-up comic, they solve a lot more creative puzzles that require moments of insight. So it's easier to have an epiphany when you're happy. That's because you're more relaxed and you're turning your spotlight of attention inwards and so on. However, sadness also comes with cognitive perks. So people who are sad and you can induce sadness in the lab by showing people a short video about death and cancer or asking these students to recite their hopes and dreams and then telling them all the reasons their hopes and dreams will never come true. So then they're crushed and sure enough, they're a bit more melancholy. That people who are sad, they write better essays, they come up with better collages, largely because they're more attentive, they're more vigilant, and they're more persistent. They're less likely to give up right away. 
So one explanation for why there is this link between bipolar depression, these are very significant correlations for the most part, is that sometimes it helps to be euphoric to have those extreme highs and you are just overflowing with moments of insight and, and epiphanies and, and, you know, eureka moments. Um, and then sometimes it helps to be sad. It, it helps to experience those sudden lows uh, where, where you are so upset, you are so melancholy. Um, because then you're better at editing, you're better at taking those big ideas and refining them for the real world. Now, you're not just interested in the creative processes of artists. I was fascinated by some of your investigations of the corporate world, you know, from, from 3M to Pixar. Maybe you can tell me some of the things you discovered by, yeah. by going into these big, successful corporations, about yeah. how they harness creativity, because yeah. I guess that's a the business they're in. You know, Pixar is one of my favorite examples simply because, especially in the movie industry, it's very tough to have a consistent track record. So the holy grail in the movie industry is finding some way to just produce hit after hit, right? Every studio's got, you know, a couple hits a year, but then they also have a couple total box office bombs. And there doesn't seem to be any logic to why they succeed and why they fail. Just no one can figure out the secret recipe. And that's what interests me at Pixar because Pixar's track record is pretty unparalleled. In a sense, they're 12 for 12. They produce 12 movies, and all 12 have been, you know, huge box office successes. Many of them are critically acclaimed as well. And I'm personally, I'm a fan of their movies, so I was very interested in spending time at the studios and getting to understand their culture. And, and there are lots of interesting things about the studio that I think help explain its track record. Everything from Steve Jobs really designed their studio, their building. People at Pixar refer to it as Steve's movie. And he really transformed the space. The original design for the building called for three separate rooms, three separate buildings, one building for the computer scientists, one building for the animators, one building for everyone else. Jobs took one look at that and said, that's a terrible idea. He realized that the success of Pixar would depend on getting these different cultures to interact, getting the, getting the scientists to learn from the artists and so on. So he insisted everyone shared the same building, but then he realized, you know what, that's not enough. So he carved out this big atrium and he started moving everything important to the atrium. He moved the gift store there and the mailboxes there and the coffee shop there and the cafeteria. But he realized even that's not enough because you could build people a gleaming cafeteria, but the animators would sell lunch with the animators and so on. So then in one of his moments of insight, he decided there'd be only two bathrooms, the entire studio, and he moved those to the atrium as well. And at first, people thought this was so inconvenient. It was it was a terrible idea. But now at Pixar, you hear again and again these stories, these bathroom epiphanies, that, that great conversation they had while washing their hands or in the hallway on the way to the bathroom. You know, I think Jobs' insight was that creativity, as he put it, is just connecting things. Well, most of those connections are going to come from other people. Um, so so he, he wanted to create a studio where it was impossible for an employee not to run into everyone else. Pixar is also a very, very critical culture. Um, they begin every day with what they call the shredding meeting, which is where they take the few seconds of footage on the day before and they deconstruct it. They look for the flaws. It is it is not always nice. And that's uh, frame by frame. That's frame by frame. So so this is this is an arduous process. And they will they don't just look at a frame and then fix it and then go away. They look at that frame again and again and again. And this was I think well summarized by Lee Unkrich, the director of Toy Story Three, who I was asking him, you know, what's the secret sauce of Pixar? And he said, too many companies, I'm paraphrasing here, but too many companies assume the way to succeed is to avoid failure, to not mess up. He says, at Pixar, they know that, that, that creative success 
isn't you know in completely intertwined with failure. That that there is no way to succeed or to take interesting risks without making mistakes. That's why the whole goal of Pixar is to simply screw up quickly to make mistakes as fast as possible, and not to put those those mistakes because, as you say, they've had twelve hits, so they haven't put those mistakes. No, and I, I mean, I thought the story, Toy Story Two was really yeah. interesting in that regard. Yes, absolutely. So Toy Story Two is this this legend at Pixar. It's it's the time they almost made a bad movie, as they put it, and they basically scrapped the movie with nine months to go and rewrote it from scratch simply because they realized that they weren't effectively fa- catching the mistakes. And, and their, whole, their whole process is all about iteration, all about finding those mistakes, fixing them, and then repeating. And you do that for four and a half, maybe five years. And at the end of that, you've got a pretty good 90-minute cartoon. One of the most interesting chapters in the book, Jonah, I thought was the one on cities. And you look at the inter- interaction between creativity and mm. cities and indeed the size and nature of cities. So can you sort of say some of the things you discovered there? Cities really are in the 21st century an engine of innovation. They are the idea that has unleashed so many of our ideas. And that's why I think urbanization is is the great theme of the next 100 years. More people are going to move to cities the next 100 years than have moved to cities in all of human history. So, so there's an astonishing migration to these big metropolises which keep on getting bigger. And that's, and that's really because the magic of a city is inseparable from the fact that cities cram us together, that they pack us in, too many people sharing too small a space. And of course that makes us uncomfortable, it leads to crime and smelly subways and all the rest, but, but it also comes with tremendous creative benefits. That even in this day and age of Skype and email, we still get smart being on other smart people. We still have our best new ideas when we are immersed in the ideas of others. That cities facilitate, they almost force us to interact. And, and it's, it's that human friction that proves so essential. It's the human friction that makes the sparks. And so that's really the magic of cities. And that's why when you data mine cities, and I'm, in, in the book I focus on the work of Jeffrey West, you find that the correlations that help predict patents per capita, say, and that's a, good me- that's a good if imperfect measure of how innovative a city is, are things like density, things like the walking speed of pedestrians, things like, you know, basically just looking for how many bumps are there in a city? How many, how many times do those people have to bump into someone else? Because what cities demonstrate is that those bumps add up. And other things being equal, the bigger the city the more the multiplier effect and the creativity. But this doesn't seem to work with corporations. So yeah. what, what's the, because you might think, well, the bigger the corporation, yeah. the more potential for sparking ideas, but it doesn't work like that. Absolutely. I find this to be a quite provocative analogy. And this is this analogy put forth by Jeffrey West, who he points out that from a certain perspective, cities and companies look very similar, right? They're both big clusters of people in a fixed physical space, lots of infrastructure. And yet they experience one very interesting difference, which is that cities are immortal. Cities never die. And companies are very, very fragile. So you can nuke a city, comes back, flood a city, comes back, and so on. But the average lifespan of the biggest companies in the world, Fortune 100 companies, is 45 years. Only two companies in the original Dow Jones Index are still around, and so on. So Wes wants to understand why, why are cities immortal and why are companies so fleeting? And what he's found gets back to the fact that cities are known as super linear scaling, that as a city gets bigger, everyone in that city becomes more productive. They're going to make more money, invent more patents and trademarks, and so on. Companies exhibit the opposite trend. As a company gets bigger, everyone in that company becomes less productive, less profit per employee, fewer patents, and so on. And the reason, West argues, is because companies get in the way. You think about a city, the magic is that it's a freewheeling, chaotic place. The mayor can't tell us where to live or who to talk to or what prompts to work on. It's just all these people going about their business. That because cities don't maximize creativity, they do exactly that. Whereas companies, they tell us who to talk to. They try to micromanage the mind. They're full of these executives who, who get paid lots of money to try to control the process. So they erect these elaborate hierarchies. They stifle horizontal interactions. They tell us to brain 
brainstorm when brainstorming doesn't work, and so on. And all these attempts to make us more creative, many of which are known with the best of intentions, they actually hold us back. So Jeffrey West's advice is quite simple. When in doubt, imitate the city. And you also look at differences across historical period in order to, to tackle questions such as, you know, what created Shakespeare? What, what were yeah. the conditions? And I wondered what you thought. You talk about these sort of meta ideas, which involve things, for example, like education or intellectual property and patenting and so on. And I wondered how you sort of rated contemporary Western culture in terms of its conduciveness to creativity, because clearly some periods yeah. sort of suppress it and others allow it to flourish. Yeah, I mean... It's obviously hard to generalize. Um, I think I think we're not doing too great. There's this wonderful line of T.S. Eliot's where he's looking at Elizabethan England and trying to understand why there is this sudden flourishing of genius. So you don't just have Shakespeare. You got Marlowe. You got you know Francis Bacon and John Donne and so on. The list goes on and on and on. And he says, you know, one could say that we simply got very lucky. Then there were lots of geniuses born during these few decades in London. He says, but that's not really true. There wasn't more genius. It's just less less genius was wasted. And I think right now we waste an awful lot of talent. We, we squander an awful lot of human capital, to borrow a term from economists. And there are, I think, some interesting models out there. A sports economist named Bill James, who he's, he's best known in America for um, pioneering a movement called Moneyball. Uh, it's advanced statistics for baseball. He points out that, you know, Western societies, especially America, are very good at creating one particular type of genius. That, that in a sense, we live in an age of excess genius right now. It's just, that's physical genius. That, that America's great at pumping out very, very talented athletes, exporting them all over the world. So that's why we, you know, that's, that's why we do well at the Olympics and so on. And he says that's because there's this incredible pipeline for developing athletic talent. So we encourage kids to play baseball and football uh, and tennis when they're young. Then if they're good, they play against other good kids so they get even better. And then we give them scholarships in high school and university. And then we've somehow conditioned, we've trained professional sports teams to lavish them with huge contracts, even when they're unproven potential. And, and so that becomes a motivating force from a very young age. He says, but we don't have pipelines like that for any other type of genius. We don't have pipelines like that for scientific genius or artistic genius or writerly genius. So he says, we simply have to take these lessons, which we know work because they work for physical genius, for developing athletic talent, and apply them to every other domain. So I think we have some interesting models for how to get better. It's just time to implement them. The correlation between genius and youth, there have been lots of studies, you know, of mathematicians or novelists, and there does there does seem to be a peaking which occurs mm. late twenties, early thirties. Now, is that a cultural culturally determined yeah. thing or is it something which yeah. about the actual functioning of our brains? So this is largely the work of Dean Simonton, who he's he's a psychologist at UC Davis and he spent much of his career looking at peak ages of creativity in various fields. And so you know, as you point out, if you're a poet or you're a physicist, your peak age is going to be in your early 30s. Uh, so that cliche of physicists that if you haven't had your Nobel Prize winning idea, by the time you're 30, you should find a new job. Turns out to be a little bit true. You know, biologists in their late 30s, novelists, mid-40s, historians, the last to peak in there in their early 50s. And these different peak ages depend on how much information you have to amass before you can make a meaningful contribution. And first of all, it's worth pointing out that these, these, these curves look quite depressing because you've got this very early peak followed by a long, slow decline. And as Simonton points out, the peak age almost always comes before you have tenure or the power to execute your ideas. And for a long time, people assumed that this was inevitable, that it was something about the brain, that the imagination, a bit like long-term memory, simply fell apart as we got older. But now there really is a consensus that this is not about the brain. This is not inevitable. 
example, but it's really a byproduct of what Simonton calls enculturation, that people simply become very invested in the status quo, that as they gain experience in a field, they become insiders, they develop assumptions and habits, routinized ways of attacking a problem, and that's often good, it makes it easier to go about our everyday life, but when it comes to creativity, it also holds us back, it makes us harder to think outside the box, and that's why when you look at People who have somehow managed to stay creative throughout their entire career, Bob Dylan, Pablo Picasso, Paul Aradosh is a great example, the mathematician who was hooked on amphetamines we talked about. They constantly risk reinvention. They're always experimenting with new kinds of math problems, new ways of writing a song, new ways of painting a painting. And it's that ability to always try out new problems that keeps, you know, keeps them creative throughout their entire life. Do you think about your own thinking slightly differently as a result of writing this book? I do. I think the the single biggest way my creative process has changed is probably, you know, I used to have this very puritanical notion of when I was stuck. I didn't know how to end a sentence or begin a paragraph. I would stay up late and force myself to just stick with it. Uh, and then, of course, you wake up the next day and you're now just exhausted and you realize your fixes haven't fixed anything. And since I've written and really talked to these researchers who study moments of insight, now when I'm really stuck and stumped, I'm much more willing to take a break, to go for a walk. Hiking is my thing. I always think of this wonderful line of Einstein's that creativity is the residue of wasted time. So I guess I've gotten much better at wasting time. Um, it, you know, If nothing else, it's a nice justification, intellectual justification for laziness. And I'm always looking for those justifications. The other way I think that this book has changed my process a little bit is that I tend to think of myself as a somewhat shy person, um, introverted, but the research on social networks and creativity is quite persuasive to me. And these are studies such as done by Martin Raff, who looked at the social networks of entrepreneurs and found that those with diverse social networks, those people who spend time with lots of other people, they were far more innovative than those with predictable social networks, those, say, computer scientists who only hung out with other computer scientists. So, so this has really inspired me to, whenever possible, try to meet new people, ask silly, naive questions, to rage against what psychologists call the self-similarity principle, which is this tendency we have to just seek out people who think just like us. That's always going to be easier and more comfortable, but if you really want to maximize creativity, then it's important to talk to strangers, to talk to people who think very differently about the world. Jonah Lero. Imagine how creativity works is out now in hardback. You can find out more about it, as well as Jonah's previous books, and several million other titles besides, by going to blackwell.co.uk. There's also a podcast archive there of over 150 author interviews. Look for the podcast tab on the home page. That's all for this edition of the Blackwell Podcast, but I hope you'll join me again soon for another programme. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>